Hey there, I'm Justin Zyduck. I'm Jim Cannon, and you're listening to The Iron Age of Comics, a critical reevaluation of comic books from about 1985 to 2000. Today we're here to talk about Animal Man, or more specifically, the first trade of the title which collects the initial nine issues of the ongoing book. But I think we'll end up talking about the author, Grant Morrison, as much, if not more so. <laughs> Grant had made a name for themselves on the UK comic scene in the late 70s and early 80s, most prominently with a strip called Zenith in 2000 AD, a story about a celebrity superhuman dealing with Lovecraftian monsters. But Animal Man was really where Grant launched into superstardom on the comic scene, making their first big splash in the American scene and garnering international attention and acclaim. Animal Man began in 1988. This is still in that run of post-crisis books that expanded and reinterpreted the DC Universe, only a year out from the reinvention of Wonder Woman by Perez and or Miller and Mazzuchelli's Batman Year One. It's a very creative time, full of febrile experimentation and attempts to make superheroes more grown-up and respectable. You know, it's, comics aren't just for kids anymore. <laughs> I've heard that. Yeah, usually followed by the biff, bam, pow, or preceded, perhaps. So Morrison and the main artist on the book, Chaz Truog, I believe that's how you pronounce his last name, but I'm I'm honestly not sure. Um, they would definitely fall into that trap, at least at first, but Animal Man played with things in a very different way than your average four-color pulp adventure comic, as we shall see. The word metatextual gets applied to this run quite often and, and perhaps uh, a lot since then to a lot of different things but i think it typifies the, the approach that this title took mm. and for general reference animal man himself is, is an obscure 1960s superhero so obscure in fact that before the morrison series the only team he'd been a part of actually called themselves the forgotten heroes <laughs> Buddy Baker, the eponymous animal man, was your typical suburban kid out hunting one day when he encountered an alien spaceship, which blew up, bombarding him with radiation, and naturally imbued him with the spectacular power to mimic the abilities of nearby animals, as such things happen. So he can breathe underwater without gills, or fly without wings, or punch with the strength of an elephant, and so on and so forth. He's, he's essentially... A one-man wildcrat for all those PBS cartoon shows fans out there. I'm sure our legion and our listener base. But Morrison wouldn't be content to leave that origin intact. It was the post-crisis DCU, after all. But we'll get into that. Maybe not this actual episode, but we'll get to it someday. Um, so, Justin, what... What was your first experience with Animal Man? Had you read anything by Grant Morrison beforehand? Did you know what you were getting into when you started reading this? Uh, yeah. So my like into Morrison would have been JLA, which is still one of my two favorite comic runs ever. Um, it depends on the day whether or not that or 
John Byrne's Fantastic Four is on top. You know, we'd flip a coin or whichever one I I read last or whatever. Um, I think that my trajectory for Morrison's career was like JLA and then back issues of Doom Patrol when those weren't like collected. So you actually had to get individual issues and then maybe like Arkham Asylum or the first trade of the Invisibles. I just remember it was like a lot all at once. You know, I have to read everything that this person wrote now, right? <laughs> as as mm-hmm. best as I could. Um, and then I think it was, I think it was Wizard Magazine. They ran a little piece saying, you know, you know, hey kid, you like this Grant Morrison character, right? Well, what if I told you that there was a comic book where Morrison appears as a character who was writing the comic that you were reading and talking to the main character, right? Like that was, that was a, a pretty much a, a sign me right up uh, moment. And like, we, we talked about this in like a whole episode and I keep bringing it up, but I think it's worth repeating that, you know, for all the stuff that we look at wizard today and go, oh, huh, <laughs> you know, about <laughs> wizard. I, it, it did clue me into things when I knew nothing about anything, you know, um, I needed, yeah. a, I needed a glossy print magazine to tell me that <laughs> animal man existed. You know, that's how things were in the nineties. Um, so I actually found issue 26, which is the last issue in Morrison's run and kind of the big confrontation between Morrison and animal man, um, in like a back issue bin, like a half price books or a comic convention or something. So I started at the end, which is not like an, as emotionally satisfying an experience as it would have been reading the whole way through, I, I assume, I have to assume that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> right? But uh, it, it was it was sufficiently mind-blowing, you know, just having that one issue. Um, and I went in to fill the rest of my collection over time. That is so backwards. I can't even imagine <laughs> having it spoiled that spectacularly before we even started. Wow. Well, I know that's, you know, we, you always say, like, you like to do things in a chronological order, right? Yes, that's my failing. <laughs> yes. I, I, think, I think the reason that I, I'm less hung up on that is because I, you know, had to approach this stuff backwards a lot of the time. So I'm, <laughs> I, you know, I was sort of atemporal before all this anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, you're operating in hypertime. Yeah. I understand now. So, yeah, I think my first Morrison was JLA 2. You know, it's big, bombastic, weird, hyper-compressed superhero epics written across the largest stage imaginable, all of time and space, for starters. I love that title like few others, and I know we'll get to it eventually, but I really only mention it to provide some context for reading Animal Man after that, because Animal Man is very personal and contained and playful, almost the complete opposite of JLA. Mm. I can't honestly remember whether I read Doom Patrol or Animal Man first but i got my hands on both initially around 2000 when i got into the professional comic selling business and <laughs> like everything was suddenly at my fingertips and i had co-workers with broader tastes than mine who were suggesting stuff to try out and obviously it didn't take a lot to convince me to read other morrison books but i i have to admit to not being all that excited about animal man <laughs> um, my only previous exposure to him was a brief snippet in Who's Who, the F volume, uh, unusually, where the Forgotten Heroes were covered. Like, Animal Man is forever linked in my brain with the Faceless Hunters because they were like <laughs> on the p- page previous or something, or, or maybe just a couple before. Anyway, like, I can't think of Animal Man without thinking of these giant 
aliens from Venus who have no faces. So, you know, not the best introduction, to be honest. But sure. So even though I read and enjoyed these, the Animal Man books, I, I got to say that Doom Patrol had a bigger emotional and intellectual impact upon me. I liked Animal Man fine, but there's no Cliff Steele here, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, rereading this for the pod with a more critical eye and, and having read some interviews from the time and such, I, I'm picking up stuff that I, I honestly missed the first time around, and, and we'll get into that in due order. But I, I think it's important to state that I am a Morrison guy. (laughs) I haven't always been won over by everything they've done, but as far as all the folks that came out of the British invasion of the Iron Age, I became very disillusioned with Alan Moore. I could never get into Neil Gaiman. Warren Ellis was a hit or miss. But Morrison... Yeah, I, I clicked with Morrison immediately and, and perhaps irrevocably. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm the same. Uh, Morrison is my favorite comics writer, and I don't have to uh, qualify that or think about that or flip a coin. Like, that's just the way it is. Uh, unless it's a burn day, I guess, right? <laughs> I, um, <laughs> as much as I like, as I, I will say that Burn is my favorite comic artist of all time, right? And as a writer, he is a tremendous artist <laughs> sorry john who i know listens to this podcast every every two weeks but uh yeah okay well that's good to know all right very good to know actually because that, that contextualizes that dichotomy <laughs> the push pull of the jla and ff okay yeah uh following the titanic critical and financial successes of swamp thing and watchmen dc started looking around for another alan moore as one does They reached out to the UK comic scene looking for talent in the late 1980s, and Grant Morrison was one of the people they found. This was the days before the internet, so DC staffers actually went to London to look for talent. The brief they had in hand was seeing if anyone could revive or reinvent old DC characters. And according to Grant, the idea to do something with Animal Man came to them while on the train from Glasgow to London. Morrison was familiar with Animal Man from reprint comics, but assumed no one else would remember the character. And like you said, like in these those pre-internet days, like this has changed so much with social media and international distribution. So we're all sort of like talking to each other and everybody can get the same product at, on some level. But like in the late 80s, America and Britain still had largely separate comics cultures. Like, I don't know how... DC did it, but I know that like Marvel, the British uh, publishers did like reprints of American superhero comics, but after the fact and in like weekly anthology formats. So like a lot of uh, American comics would actually like be you know, chopped up and sort of spread out over weekly titles. Um, but M- Morrison says in their book, uh, Super Gods, that they actually first saw actual original Superman comics brought over to Scotland as ballast on boats of the U.S. military. So they have sort of a, <laughs> sort of a, like a, you know, sort of bound up this sort of, you know, military, but also, you know, the, the hope of, of Superman. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, all this is to say that like superheroes were not like totally alien to the U.K., but they are a very American phenomenon, which is something that 
you know, we don't always notice being on the inside the way that you and I are. Um, and what the existence of Alan Moore suggested to DC was that like these people have an outsider's perspective that like they know about this stuff, but also have this other perspective that can be really interesting. You know, like they take less of this stuff for granted and you know, the UK in the eighties was a whole, um, was it a whole vibe in my, my trivializing yeah, <laughs> the, yeah. the situation well, of Britain in the eighties to say it was a vibe, but yeah, you know, there's a, <laughs> there's the Thatcherite junta yeah. <laughs> <laughs> coloring everything. Yeah. Right. Um, the, the immediate hook Grant saw for Animal Man came from their own experience with the documentary, The Animals Film. Have you ever heard of this? Yeah, I think I've only ever heard of it in reference to, you know, Morrison actually mentioning it in Super Gods or or interviews or something. Yeah, that's, that's my entire <laughs> experience with it, too, and where I'm getting all this information. So the, the movie appeared in cinemas in 1981, but was broadcast on Channel 4 in the U.K., in 1982 in a special two-hour version slightly shorter than than the theatrical cut grant says that they saw it only once i i presume that was the channel 4 broadcast but i I don't know and cites this film as driving them to vegetarianism and i think the film's profile of the animal rights movement heavily informed the direction that they would take animal man in in their own words grant saw a way to quote use Animal Man as a mouthpiece against cruelty to animals and the general degradation of the environment, as well as for deeper explorations of the superhero as an idea, end quote. And I, I briefly flirted with the idea of doing a terrible Scottish accent <laughs> doing that, but common sense won't worn out, folks, so <laughs> you're welcome. Um, are you by chance a vegetarian, Justin? What do you think of the treatment of animals here in the first decades of the 21st century? Ooh, uh, yeah, we so we should engage with this, right? Because the comic is explicitly about this. You really can't talk about it without talking about that, especially at this point in the run. Um, I live in Wisconsin. I think I've mentioned that. Uh, where all your stereotypes about us are actually true, right? <laughs> so, like, I am I am out there grilling brats. In February, there's still <laughs> snow on the ground. You know that's that's that is my life. Um, so no, I am I am not a vegetarian. I I don't use the word hero often, Justin. <laughs> but, uh, no, but seriously, yeah, I I'm an omnivore. Um, that said, I I pretty much only eat meat during one meal of the day. My my diet's primarily fruit, grains, and nuts. So I'm, I'm some kind of monkey perhaps but I, I do love a barbecue now i haven't seen that documentary or really any others like it but I, i'm a man of the world squire and i am <laughs> not ignorant of the myriad horrible ways in which humanity treats our fellow creatures or how brutal and bloody the meat industry and in specifically is but you know um animals are delicious i'm afraid <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm certainly respectful, right? And like, I have to admit that I think of it as like it would be better if I didn't eat meat for all sorts of reasons, right? But like, mm. I do. Um, <laughs> yeah, so that's um, I'm I'm willing to call this a vice. I think if yeah. <laughs> if, if, if you will, right? No, well, I don't. I see. I don't know because like our genus only appeared on the African savanna after our ancestors started diversifying their diet and it's i mean it's hard to say 
whether the increased protein consumption that came from eating meat or the, the requisite cooperation needed to acquire those resources actually gave rise to our increased brains and tool use and eventual mastery of the planet as the most successful invasive species ever. But you only have to look at human dentition to see we evolved to eat a wide variety of foods. I don't think we're, we necessarily have to be dependent upon meat, but I think, I don't know, I, it's an important part of our diet, which, I mean, I'm not against vegetarianism or veganism or anything like that, but um, I'm not prepared to, to cut meat out entirely. So, like, while this book did, you know, really make me think on occasion, <laughs> it, it didn't actually change my life. Yeah. And the, the comic does have, like, a broader scope of animal rights issues, too, beyond just food. You know, one issue features a debate between characters of, like, if medical testing on rats could save the life of one child, you know, wouldn't that be justified? And Animal Man's sort of knee-jerk response is like, well... Who's to say that a child's life is intrinsically more valuable than a rat's? You know, and then like the the counter argument to that is, well, humans are, you know, an intelligent creature. And then Animal Man comes back with, you know, your your standard, uh, you know, rats aren't burning down the rainforest or making nuclear weapons, man. So um yep. yeah, so that's you know, that's sort of the sort of the, the argument that's coming in this book. Um, but it's also like to it should be pointed out that like Buddy is portrayed as struggling with his evolving views as well. Like when he decides to go vegetarian, he just starts throwing out all the meat in the house, you know? And then like when his kid asks him what they're going to eat, he hasn't figured that out yet. He's like, I don't know, tofu? Like, why, why are you asking me, right? So like, <laughs> he's not a guy who has, you know, or Morrison is not writing him as a guy who has all the answers and he's lecturing us from this, you know, sort of, morally superior, well thought out thing. This is, you know, also somebody trying to figure out like, how do I be a responsible human being and balance, you know, all these things with my, with my beliefs. Yep. And that's also a great way to start a fight with your wife. Right. I think. <laughs> Speaking from personal experience, now that I've thrown meat out, <laughs> but you know, <laughs> I mean, you don't allow a decision yeah. without talking first. That's going to be trouble. So Morrison worked up a four issue proposal with a, consciously Alan Moore-esque spin on the character. I'm I'm not sure how much they would admit to that now, but that's essentially what they say in the introduction to the first trade. And I don't think either of us really wants to delve too deeply into the the feud between Alan Moore and Grant Morrison. It doesn't make anybody look good. <laughs> and I think yeah. it's enough to say that neither person is particularly fond of the other and, and kind of leave it at that, but I will say that I think Alan Moore's dismissal of Morrison is is predicated on the notion that Morrison was just another imitator of Moore's style. And you know, technically, <laughs> these first four issues um, are certainly that. But I don't think that was a, like out of any devotion to the master or or lack of intrinsic talent. Like DC came to the UK to find another Alan Moore and Grant oblige them essentially using those stylistic techniques to get a foot in the door and this imitation was calculated and once grant's goals were achieved the style was more or less immediately discarded yeah that the at first four issues it does really have sort of an atmosphere of like 
oh yeah, I can do I can do all this stuff too, right? I can do the cute little transitions and the the very heavy narration. So uh, yeah, we'll we'll get into that. Um, I I do think that Morrison is more fond of or more inspired by Moore's work than they sometimes let on. Morrison's persona in the late eighties and into the nineties was sort of trying to infuse comics writing with this sort of, um, rock star, pop star, you know, punk rock glamor, right? Like why shouldn't coming out with a new comic be like releasing, you know, a new hit single and why can't interviews be provocative and bold and, you know, all that stuff instead of just being like, here's what's coming up this summer in web of Spider-Man, you know? <laughs> and like Morrison has said that pretty much straight up. Like, yes, I, I thought it would, I wanted to make comics writing be cool, you know, in the, in the public eye. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mixed success. No, certainly. I mean, no, I, I, I agree. That was the position. I'm not sure. I'm not sure they succeeded, really. Right. Yeah. So I, I tend to think that, like, young Morrison had actual, you know, criticisms of of Moore and, you know, continues to. And, and they are, you know, very different in their approach, obviously. But I think there's, you know, was some element of, like, you want to take shots at the, you know, the top dog in comics, right? You know, that's sort of a... You know, the Rolling Stones going after the Beatles, you know, at, at, at points. So, you know, it sort of makes a statement and adds sort of an extra layer of entertainment to the way that, you know, the same way that pop stars have feuds. And, like, Moore does work the press, too, you know. Um, they, you know, he has a a persona that he likes to, he likes to be the Wizard of Northampton, I, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and, he, and, he, and he's not above doing the, like, thing in interviews of, like, oh, I've, I've forgotten their name, you know, but somebody criticized me. <laughs> yeah. You know, right? So like that's you know, it's not a totally one sided thing here, but yeah. No, I don't know. I'm 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 happy to leave it there. I agree that I don't want to get into, you know, who said what and when and chart the you know, the growth of this feud. Uh they should probably just leave each other alone, right? I, I hate I hate when you know, I used to hate when my parents fought. So Look at there, and you know I don't want to do. I don't believe in doing like the whole zero sum, you know, game of picking a side when we c- compare creators. I probably, on the whole, like Morrison more than more, but you know, just because I like blue better than red, that doesn't mean that red sucks, right? Well, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I agree. You got some feelings about red, I know, but <laughs> I yeah, I do. <laughs> They're probably not fair. They're certainly idiosyncratic and and my own my own feelings about red. <laughs> but um <clears throat> more on that anon. Um after the first four issues, Grant admits they didn't have any real ideas for the book, but it sold well enough that DC wanted to keep them in the book around. And it's essentially in the fifth issue that we get the first real 100% Grant Morrison American comic book. It diverges from the Moore style of, quote, realistic superheroes, unquote, significantly, and showcases Morrison's own fascination with fiction and reality and where the two intersect, influence one another, and feed upon each other. I do find this fascinating, given that the rest of the industry simply could not let Watchmen go. Even as recently as 2017, via Jeff John's Doomsday Clock, people were still reckoning directly with Moore and Gibbons, never mind all the aftershocks that Watchmen set through the industry that are still being felt today. 
But like that Doomsday's Clock is directly like that is that is a sequel to Watchmen that no one right. asked for or needed. And yet, according to the circa 1991 introduction of Animal Man, Grant found that the realistic superhero genre from Watchmen was essentially played out by 1988 and had nothing interesting to say any further. And like, wow, that's crazy <laughs> and awesome. And at the same time, you like you look at Morrison's output for the following three decades, and that pretty much tracks, <laughs> at least as far as Morrison themselves is concerned. I mean, the rest of the industry is doing right. what it does, but yeah, Morrison's like, yeah, mm-hmm, yeah, no, I'm done. We're gonna do this now. It was it was it was, it was fun, you know, for a, for a couple of years there. I'd... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and um, I, I guess those are the two schools, right? And are can superheroes handle being realistic? Should they be realistic? Like that's an argument for another time. <laughs> um, the artist on the book is Chaz Truog with inks by Doug Hazelwood. Tom Grummet does provide art on one issue in the collection. Truog is self-deprecating, claiming in a comics journal interview from 2022 that he possibly got the job by being the first person to answer the phone. <laughs> I did want to jump in here to say that Ron Garney, who uh, we talked about in the our episode on Captain America Operation Rebirth, uh, he's claimed that he was up for the job at one time when Truog had maybe turned it down initially and but then changed his mind. I don't know if Truog's interview like mentioned having turned it down at all, but you know uh, Garney is pretty consistent in saying like, yeah, I, I did you know eight pages as a sample or something. Hmm. Interesting. No, I don't think. I don't recall that in that the Comics Journal interview. Mm. Um, Animal Man wasn't a character that Truog knew much about at the time, which freed him up to sort of just do his thing. There was none of the tradition of Batman or, or Superman art to live up to because nobody remembered the Forgotten Heroes, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> he, he did adapt the goggles Animal Man wears based on how the cover artist Brian Bolland drew them. And he redesigned the denim jacket that Grant put Buddy in, starting with the story Fox on the Run, which is not actually in this collection. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But Truog claims that no one draws the jacket the same way he did. Should we talk more about the jacket here? um, Yeah, because pre-crisis Animal Man, right? He just had this orange and blue sort of traditional skin-tight costume. But the um, like the trend of like jackets and trench coats on '90s superheroes sort of starts here with Animal Man. I think I, I can't think of like a real clear predecessor. I'm I'm sure that I'm missing somebody on like you know Marvel or somebody in '85 or something. But um, it's presented here as sort of like Buddy's a normal guy. Buddy Baker's a normal guy, and he starts to feel a little self conscious about wearing a skin tight costume all over the place, and so he puts on this jacket. But, like, wouldn't the solution there be pants? <laughs> if, I'm, if, I'm, if I'm using, the, like, the logic in the story, right? Well, uh, to your first point, um, Simon Williams, the Wonder Man, maybe? Y- and, yeah. And but- his, his Savari jacket. Um, but he's not wearing a costume underneath that. He's just wearing, like, regular clothes. And then he, he evolves into a, a more traditional superhero costume after that. Yeah. Um, but I think in Buddy's case, it's like the jacket 
also kind of stands in for a cape. You'll see other superheroes mm, okay. wear trench coats or the like, um, which, you know, they functionally the same thing as a cape, a signifier of that kind of swirling um, garment as you leap about dramatically. Yeah. Um, but but less, as we've gotten away from um, superheroes wearing 1930s um, acrobat or, or strongman outfits. Mm-hmm. I think the jacket fits in better into the superhero milieu because of that association with the cape garment um, better than a pair of baggy pants might. <laughs> so the jacket kind of splits the difference, I guess. Yeah, no, I, I, I get that. I'm, I, just, I think that's sort of just a, a funny rationalization be like, oh, I don't want people to look at my you know, arms or whatever. So I guess I'm going <laughs> yeah, to. He's yeah. got skinny arms. <laughs> <laughs> he does actually, yeah. Yeah, he's not he's in shape, but he's not like um you know, like uh Jim Lee Cyclops right. um or <laughs> or John Burns Superman or um Dick Sprang's Batman, you know, he's he's a right. slight guy for sure. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I got his reference Dick Sprang. Uh, <laughs> um my favorite Batman artist. So Truog describes Grant as a very visual writer as someone whose scripts reflect the fact that they had really thought about how everything would appear on the page. And sometimes there would be an aha moment as Truig realized there was a specific visual element in the script. Yeah, and it makes sense because like Morrison is a decent artist whenever I see sketches by them, right? By their own by their own admission, they were had sort of made the decision that they were going to focus on writing and never really developed from that sort of talented amateur thing, you know, to like professional caliber. Like, I was a pretty decent comics artist when I was 15, and today I'm a pretty decent comics artist for being 15, right? <laughs> so, like, yeah, but, you know, but, but actually, like, yeah, but actually, like, looking at, like, Morrison's designs and stuff, like, there's probably, you can point to, you know, some professionals who probably aren't as good. I will leave, <laughs> I will, I will leave that as an exercise to the to the listener to <laughs> take their least favorite artist on a peg or two. But, yeah, that's... Um, it's- Subjective evaluation. Um, unfortunately, there was no real collaboration between Morrison and Truag. He, Truag just basically got the scripts. He drew the scripts and otherwise had no real relationship with Morrison. And you'll see that Truag is noticeably missing from any of the lists of great artists that Morrison likes to discuss having worked with in the past. And I think it's kind of a shame um, because Truag does a really good job with this material even if it's just by default, like Truog is a huge part of the reason why this series succeeded. Mm-hmm. He's not a flashy artist, but he has good figure work. The action is clear. The characters are all visually distinct. There's a bit of cartooniness to the whole thing, which, which I personally appreciate. But he's also able to make these mundane domestic spaces like Buddy's house feel exciting. Mm-hmm. Most importantly, Truog can draw animals. <laughs> you know, to your previous point, not all comic book artists can pull that off. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, he brings a lot of specificity to the drawings. Like, Buddy's house seems like a real place, like a real design place, and not just, you know, draw your idea of a house. <laughs> um, we spend a lot of time in the kitchen, actually, I've noticed. Yeah, that's true. Here. And, like, the kitchen always looks like a particular kitchen and not just, you know... I had to th- I'd come up with a, with a floor plan new each time, right? To depending yeah. on what I'm drawing. 
Um, yeah, it's a certain kind of carpet. And even like the characters, like, you know, Ellen, his wife, wears certain kind of clothes. Buddy wears certain kind of clothes. Like the uh, Cliff, his his son, definitely has like a, a certain uh, late 80s kid aesthetic. So, <laughs> yeah, late, uh, there, there's a late 80s middle school punk. Yeah, yeah. it's absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, we should mention the uh, the covers by Brian Bolland um, because uh, they're very arresting, right? And might be as responsible for this selling well and getting picked up to series as, as anything else might be. Um, Bolland is also British. He starts doing covers for DC in 1980. So he actually predates more and almost everyone else. So he's really sort of at the, at the forefront of American publishers looking to the UK for talent. Bolland is best known. I, I would think for like Camelot 3000, mm-hmm. uh, Batman, the killing joke and many, Many covers for DC, including 63 issues of Animal Man. Yeah, uh, yeah. Stays on, stays on later than you know Morrison and and Truog and and everyone else. Yeah. Um, it is an, an interesting pairing with Truog because their styles are different. You know, like I, they're not like diametrically different. It's not like Truog is doing like you know some kind of anime thing that's totally at odds. But like, there's a, a sort of like that that cartooniness, that sort of fluidness that you mentioned contrast with Balin style, which is, you know, I guess I would, I would call that like illustration based rather than cartooning. There's a lot of fine detail work, a lot of cross hatching. Yeah. I think illustration based is a good way to put it, particularly on the covers, not so much on the interiors of comics that he's illustrated. Um, but on the covers for sure, there's a lot of line work that reminds you of John Tenniel. The guy best known for illustrating the Alice in Wonderland books. Like that is illustration, right. <laughs> you know? Um, so yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. I think that's enough preface. <laughs> uh, we usually pull back and do a broad overview or, or focus on characters when we have this many issues to cover. But I think these issues are so rich and dense that we have to take a closer look at them. So I'm going to do that against your objections, Justin. So just- <laughs> no, let's, 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 let's do it. Okay. Um, There's a clear delineation between the first four issues of this collection and the rest that I'm almost surprised that they weren't published in separate volumes. The first four parts of the story are definitely in that Alan Moore Swamp Thing mode of edgy reinventions, brutal violence, and copious amounts of descriptive captions. Right off, though, right away, we're introduced to an unusual main character. So unlike most superheroes you'll find, Buddy Baker is married. His wife, Ellen, is an artist and operates as the family's primary wage earner with a regular job doing storyboards for movies or television. Um, not sure. Maybe both. Mm-hmm. They have two kids, Cliff and Maxine. Ostensibly, Buddy is a stuntman, but mostly he just hangs out at home and tries to figure out what to do with his life. <laughs> He has these powers. He's almost 30. When is he going to do something with his life? Oh, shoot. I was was supposed to do that, wasn't I? Yeah. Yeah, in your 30s, you're supposed to do that. Oh, wow. uh, (laughs) And and many people actually don't. (laughs) And then they end up doing podcasts. Hooray. In their 40s. Good for you out there in Radio Land, we hope. (laughs) (laughs) There's still time. Justin, there's still time. Um, Buddy decides to start practicing with his powers, and it quickly becomes apparent 
that he also doesn't have a secret identity. So he's married, a secret identity, he's got kids. What the heck is happening? This is so <laughs> far afield from your Batmans and your Spider-Mans. Uh, it's already revolutionary. So he's really keen on being a superhero, although his the motives are somewhat murky. Is he looking for fame? Notoriety? Does he feel some responsibility to do something with the abilities he's acquired through random chance? Nah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Maybe. Yeah. So, regardless, he, he goes about getting a career as a superhero much like an actor or musician would trying to get a gig. He hires a friend as a manager who gets him a TV spot. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, comics have dealt with like the superhero as celebrity before, right? You know, we have Fantastic Four has no secret identities and they have to deal with the press and, and all that stuff. Um, later on, you'd get ecstatics. Um, the MCU broadly is kind of about what if superheroes were treated like celebrities, I guess. Um, and Morrison's own Zenith that you mentioned is also about this uh, same thing already. But usually these sort of deal with heroes who are already a big deal and then they have to deal with, you know, the fame that comes with being this big time superhero. Animal Man is a guy at the the fringes who is trying to break in and climb the ladder. Uh, I guess today this would be like Buddy uploading videos of himself to social media doing superhero stuff. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But like, you know, it's, it's 1988, right? And 87, 88 and... Morrison has been in bands, you know, so that's what a lot of the signifiers of this look like to me, you know, trying to get gigs, like you said, get, you know, having a manager, trying to get them out there. Um, and then like thinking about like, well, I can use this, you know, notoriety when I become a superhero to be, you know, sort of speak out for animal rights and that sort of eighties musician activist way. There's a, in the first arc, there's a picture of like a Rolling Stone magazine with the Justice League International, like. They're, you know, pitching in for Africa, right? In that kind of, you know, we are the world 80s kind of way. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't get a ton of context for what Animal Man's career has been. Um, the comic and Morrison are sort of banking on you not really having read any of his previous appearances, but maybe being just vaguely aware that there is a character called Animal Man out there who has been doing something. They, uh, he did appear in Crisis on Infinite Earth, so like there is... Oh, everybody did. Though. Yeah, <laughs> but like, like you, you would have seen him recently, but like, there's not a lot of context in that comic for who this this guy is. It's just you know, oh, there's a guy with a big A on his on his chest, right? He's <laughs> I guess I, I guess he must be he must be a thing, right? Yeah, and that's sort of like how you're supposed to read this is like, oh, I guess he must have had some kind of career. And like the way that I always read it is that like Buddy had tried to make it as Animal Man shortly after getting his powers, but kind of like put his career on hold when he had kids, maybe. And like now that he's, you know, he's older and he's got sort of the exposure from crisis and he's thinking like, you know, maybe now is the time <laughs> I should start you know, and turning like you're going to be 30. Like right? maybe now is the time that I just got to start thinking about getting my own thing sort of going again. Yeah. So like, yeah, so that is sort of like a, you know, a struggling musician or artist or writer or whatever, you know, struggling creative type. Right. Yeah. That's sort of the metaphor here. I think. I think so. That works. Interspersed with this training montage and, and burgeoning superhero career, we get glimpses of the opening arc's villain, himself an animal-themed superhero with the unfortunate name of, deep breath, Bawana Beast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Bawana Beast has a magic helmet that allows him to sense animals and even combine two disparate animals into one weird hybrid. 
taking a bird and a lion and turning it into a winged lion, for example. Beast is in California looking for a kidnapped friend, but he's also reeling from a revolution in Africa that claimed the life of another friend, whose death led to Beast flipping out and killing a lot of people. As it turns out, Beast is looking for a magical ape person that he shares a telepathic and symbiotic link with. This ape person, Juba, seems to be some kind of Australopithecine or, or missing link. And because she more closely resembles humans than even a chimpanzee, she was stolen by unscrupulous scientist types so they could perform medical experiments on her. And Beast is also suffering some from similar symptoms to Juba because of that symbiotic link, and he's getting edgy and crazy. So, Bawana Beast. I'm not even sure if I'm saying Bawana right, but but you know that character Bawana Beast is even more obscure than Animal Man in like the DCU hierarchy. Like I think this was like a character who appeared you know two or three times maybe in pre-crisis lore and was sort of a feature they tried out and. Nobody liked it or it didn't go, didn't go very far. Um, and that's, you know, this is like, like you said, sort of like in that early Swamp Thing vein of like, or an early Sandman vein even of doing a horror spin on kind of a weird old DC character. Yeah. Buona Beast comes from that transitional period away from the 50s Jungle Tales comics filled with Tarzan clones and, and towards the the 50s superheroes there's a few artifacts from that time buona beast is one of them uh congo rilla if you've heard right. of that is another mm-hmm. so this character is referred to often in this series as the white god of kilimanjaro <laughs> yeah and like this is so this is like obviously right like bound yeah. up in some white savior stuff morrison will actually revisit and interrogate this concept and the legacy of this character a little more in depth later on in the series. So um, maybe we can punt talking about that until then. But like, you know, yep. we know, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> Obviously. Um, the scientists, by the way, um, they're making mutant super anthrax weapons for the army under cover of working on vaccines. Like they're not just, you know, mad scientists trying to do a thing. They're, you know, they have a, some sort of army military contract. Uh, Morrison's work throughout the eighties and nineties are sort of steeped in conspiracy theory stuff. Like, especially, you know, when you read the invisibles, there's a lot of that Mm -hmm. kind of, you know, thing. Um, I will say like, if you're coming to this for the first time in 2023, right. And you're like, Oh, animal man is asking like, if this vaccine research is being used to cover up dirty deeds. And if like, there are all these diseases that are escaping from government created labs, like this all read differently, you know, in, in (laughs) X-Files days than it does today where that sort of thing is used as a different political talking point, right? Yeah. It is, it's, it's, it just, it's always just very funny to come back on this and be like, oh yeah, people who probably believe the opposite of most of the things that Morrison believe come to these same conclusions about some of the, yeah, some of these things here. Yeah. So into this situation comes Buddy Baker, the animal man hired by the unscrupulous scientist to deal with a threat because I saw him on TV. <laughs> so he's getting work. Yeah. Uh, despite having his powers for at least a, a decade or so, we assume at this point, and having some superheroing under his belt, all 
pre-crisis appearances, admittedly. Buddy pretty much has no idea what he's doing. And it's mostly through sheer luck that he survives the initial encounter with Bawana Beast. Or, more accurately, the weird animal hybrid minions Beast sends after Buddy. The whole Bawana Beast reveal is actually held back until the third issue. But at one point, Buddy gets an arm ripped off, and he lies bleeding to death in an alley until he uses earthworm powers to completely regrow his missing appendage. It's cool, (laughs) but also crazy. And our first clue that Buddy's powers don't really work like animal powers, because, well, earthworms do regenerate to some extent. Like when you cut one and two, you make yourself two earthworms. They don't work like Wolverine. Like <laughs> you can kill an earthworm by right. like with a knife. Um, so, but I think as, as experienced comic book readers, we just kind of roll with this at first. But it does become important later that Animal Man is not just copying animal abilities. It's a little more complicated than that. And that's also sort of like a, a Swamp Thing thing, right? Of like the anatomy lesson kind of thing, pointing out that like. A lot of things in, you know, a superhero's or, you know, comic book character's origin might not seem logical, whatever that means in, you know, superhero comics. But mm-hmm. that's sort of like, not, you know, like I said, like not taking things for granted. So it's like, well, let's interrogate what this actually means or could mean. Whenever comic book writers are not going back to basics, they're showing you everything that you know is wrong. It's, it works. It's the two modes. It's a good scheme. <laughs> so eventually there's a showdown in a zoo of course where else would two animal themed superheroes have their their final battle so, but like both animal man and Buana beast have the advantage in a zoo but beast is getting sicker and sicker as the battle progresses and and finally buddy gets the whole story he decides to let beast go juba dies from her infections Buddy punches out the lead unscrupulous scientist because they're the real villains. The scientist later gets an ironic punishment from Beast where he is merged with Juba's body and ends up being used as a guinea pig in his own lab. Yeah, so that's like a horror story ending, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah in, in, in keeping with the whole like horror sort of flavored superhero thing of this sort of pre-Vertigo crowd, right? The Sandman and Swamp Thing and Hellblazer. Um, but like Animal Man sticks a bit more to like the traditional superhero aesthetic, at least more than the others. You know, like this is actually like a guy in tights yeah. having adventures. Um, but it is also like a story where a guy gets his arm ripped off and your villain ends up, you know, being dissected at the end, at least yeah. is, is implied. So, yeah. So it's all very adult and serious. <laughs> serious face. I'm, Des- I'm reading it. <laughs> despite the, b- despite the tights. Yeah. It's got a jacket over the tights, so that's how you know it's it's a book for grown-ups. So, in a parallel story, Ellen and Maxine are menaced by un- unscrupulous – see, there's more unscrupulous people. <laughs> These unscrupulous hunters. And I use that modifier because, of course, hunters and scientists are, are not in and of themselves bad people, but the ones in this comic are. <laughs> so, this is pretty grim stuff, though, not least because a cat and her kittens are murdered – and sexual assault is threatened, and there's child endangerment thrown into boot. So reading this stuff now, I I gotta say, like when I was in my twenties reading this, I was like, cool, you know. <laughs> but now, 
in my late 40s, I'm in full agreement with Grant about realistic superheroes running their course. This is not the kind of stuff I like to see in a four-color book, but I also don't doubt that this was included in order to get the attention of all those Swamp Thing readers. Yeah, I mean, this stuff, especially, like, there are some, you know, there's some, you know, I'm going to use air quotes here, grown-up stuff, right? <laughs> yeah. Later on in the book that I think works a little better and is a little more thoughtful. This, I think, just seems like it's here to be, you know, real and push the envelope. And like like you said, you know, um, you know, not bam, piff, bow. <laughs> yeah. Not just for, none of those were actual good onomatopoeias. I would be a terrible comic book writer. <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah, no, Peter don't Pounds say that out loud. <laughs> uh but yeah, I, I do. I do want to say, and you sort of brought this up, but like I, you know, I don't hunt myself, um, but I do live in Wisconsin, like I said, and that's a big part of the culture here. Um, and I'm not, I'm not like offended by the portrayal of the hunters here as just being these like dumb guys who just love drinking beer and killing stuff for the sake <laughs> of killing stuff, you know. But I, I, I do have to like, for the sake of my state, right? I have to say that like carefully regulated hunting which is not what's going on here, obviously, but like carefully regulated hunting is part of responsible wildlife management. And in Wisconsin, like hunters either have to thin out deer or a bunch of people hit them with their cars anyway, right? So, and, and that's in part because humans have severely impacted the range of predators in order to protect livestock. Sure. But, but yeah, I, I spent a summer working at a museum in the Adirondacks and, and came out of that with a much greater appreciation of hunters. They tend to be big on conservation. You know, Teddy Roosevelt, who killed things on, a, on at least three continents, uh, <laughs> was a huge supporter and establisher of national parks, for example. Mm -hmm. The fifth issue of Animal Man is entitled The Coyote Gospel. I think this is where Grant Morrison truly arrives on the American comic scene. This is where the transition into their own style occurs and the focus shifts away from the realistic superheroes phenomenon into the obsession <laughs> sure. with fiction and its relationship to reality that has dominated Morrison's work throughout their career. Absolutely. And it's remarkable because like you said, Morrison had a four issue story arc in mind, right? And then DC asks them for more and they're like, oh, you know, I don't really know that I have any other ideas. I guess I can try to fish something out. And they ultimately, <laughs> you know, and they ultimately write this virtuoso single issue meditation that like introduces and summarizes Morrison's primary thematic concern for the next 20 years, just like in the back, in their pocket, in their back pocket, apparently. Yeah. I just, you know, I got this idea kicking around. Maybe I guess I'll put. Buddy Baker into this narrative. Oh, here, I guess. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. It's absolutely yeah. amazing. Yeah. Staggering. Uh, and Morrison acknowledges what a risk this was for, you know, a, a new kid, right? Starting out in American comics. Like this isn't a total of 180 from the first four issues. Cause it's still sort of swamp thingy, maybe a little bit, but mm -hmm. you know, like if try to try, you know, if we can, Try to imagine us not knowing who Morrison is and all their, you know, what's to come in their career. Reading this, the first four issues of fairly grounded horror flavored superhero melodrama, right? And then, you know, all of a sudden issue five hits and it's like, all right, who wants to use Wiley e. Coyote as a means to think about the nature of God and the, <laughs> the cruelty of existence? You know, buck, buckle up, right? Yeah. 
It's crazy. Oh, man. This is so good. Um, the story opens with a trucker picking up a hitchhiker driving through the desert on the way to Los Angeles. The truck hits something humanoid on the road. Jump to a year later, and the truck driver has returned to the desert. His life was perfect before he hit that thing in the road, but ever since, his life has turned to ashes. The last straw was seeing that same hitchhiker's face in the newspaper recently murdered. A trucker blames the accident for the reversal of luck, although it's not clear how the trucker knows the creature survived the hit and run. The creature is revealed to be a humanoid coyote, gray-furred and slightly cartoonish-looking, with something tied around its neck. The trucker lays traps for the for the creature that are intentionally reminiscent of Chuck Jones' cartoons, but the coyote thing appears to be immortal. Animal Man finally appears, you know, just kind of flying across the desert. Yep. And literally drops into the middle of the story. <laughs> he confronts the coyote thing, which hands him the scroll hanging from its neck. Animal Man unrolls and begins to read. The narrative switches to a cartoon world with anthropomorphic animals running around, killing one another in increasingly violent ways. A coyote named Crafty, very subtle, decides uh-huh. to do something about it and approaches the world's gods, the animators. His supplication is rewarded. Peace will come to the cartoon world, but Crafty is exiled to another world where he will be tortured for all eternity. So long as he suffers, peace will continue. The trucker manages to shoot the coyote thing in the heart, just as Buddy hands the scroll back to it, and it's revealed that the scroll is covered in gibberish that Buddy can't read. <laughs> so only the audience knows the truth. The coyote coll- collapses backward into a four-way junction, intentionally posed like Christ on the cross, as a pool of colorless blood expands from its still form. In the last panel, we see the thumb and brush of the colorist appear in the corner, about to turn the pool of blood red. Boom. <laughs> what the hell, right? Woo. Uh, so this is a story told on several levels, like the obvious ones and the not so obvious ones, and I'm sure I'm missing a few. Just on the most obvious level, it interrogates a relationship to cartoons, in particular cartoon animals, and all the brutal tortures that are designed to entertain us. Why does Wiley Coyote falling off a cliff make me laugh so hard? <laughs> I'd cringe if I saw it happen to a real animal or person, but somehow the Roadrunner cartoons are hilarious. And this also leaves us in a space where our main character clearly exists in a world manipulated by creative powers. Yeah, like broadly, this is the Daffy Duck cartoon Duck Amok, but with theological implications, I guess. <laughs> like, what if the answer to, you know, why do bad things happen to good people is because it's entertaining, you know, mm-hmm. or God is showing off to, to somebody, somebody's, mm-hmm. somebody's asking for this, right? <laughs> so... Yeah, again, what's so staggering is that, like, Morrison will decide to explore this for the, pretty much the rest of this run. But it's all summarized here. Like, you can, like, this sort of unlocks the, the you know, the, the larger text. It's like they wrote the cliff notes before actually writing the novel. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is pretty good. Why don't I let the next 20 issues, I'll just do more of this. Yeah. Yeah. 
So this general pattern of buddies stumbling into a situation he barely comprehends and or has no idea how to solve follows for the next few issues. At the time of publication, DC was doing a company-wide crossover called Invasion, where in which a number of the alien species from the DCU teamed up to try to conquer the Earth. So this is full-on post-crisis DC universe, right? Like built on heavily organized events to out-Marvel Marvel, right? Uh, and Animal Man is not yet this prestigious run that we think of it today. It's just, you know, another late 80s comic that DC has putting out. And it's a little <laughs> bit it's a little bit weirder than the others, right? Certainly. Mm-hmm. But it's still, you know, it has to play in the larger sandbox. Uh, the flip side of that is that, you know, at the time, this was like very, it helps all the DC books be immersive. Like we talked about like way back in our first episode about the whole point of like, universe-based storytelling in the first place, right? But then... 30 years later, people are rereading this or even just discovering Animal Man for the first time. And all this invasion stuff seems pretty random and, you know, not how you would, certainly not how you, how you would do it today. Right. The issues I think mostly stand alone. I mean, I haven't read invasion myself to be honest, but you know, superheroes versus an alien invasion is an easy enough idea to get your head around. Right. Like that's just sort of superhero stuff that happens. But it does sort of stick out when you're reading it here as, you know, this prestige uh, collected edition. But that is yeah, certainly an artifact of, of comics during this period. I, I'm, re- again, reminded of whenever I reread Morrison's JLA and suddenly Superman is blue and made out of electricity. It's really <laughs> right. jarring. But that was what was going on at the time, so they had to deal with it. Um, but getting back to Animal Man, the, in the first of the invasion-themed issues, a Thanagarian warship attacks California. And for those who don't know, the Thanagarians are Hawkman species. So the spaceship is staffed with human-looking people in bird-themed uniforms, and everybody's wearing wings. One of them is a Thanagarian performance artist who has devised an art installation which is also a bomb designed to fracture the San Andreas Fault and unleash geologic devastation across the North American continent while simultaneously broadcasting the artist's life story. The artist is set to die when the bomb goes off, too. Element arrives to try to stop the bomb, but he has no idea how to handle Earth technology, let alone an alien bomb. (laughs) So he kind of desperately tries to do something while the artist's life unfolds on the page. And this is the essential premise of the issue, following the life of this poetic, sensitive soul growing up in a brutal warrior culture like Thanagar possesses, and how he disappoints his father, how he finds a way to contribute to this aggressive society, becoming a performance artist, and dedicating his life to an artistic, destructive suicide. The story rises to a crescendo with Buddy absolutely useless, and then, you know, like Hawkman just shows up and presses a button on the bomb and poof, poof, that's it. We're done. That's over. <laughs> As part of the uh, regular guy superhero thing, uh, Buddy is fairly ineffectual in a lot of these issues. Right? <laughs> it's it's like you said, like, mostly wandering in, but also not like wandering in and necessarily fixing stuff, but just like wandering in and like, I'm your perspective into this, you know, into this wacky scenario that's happening here. And I'll, things will sort of resolve themselves and I'll go like, well, that was weird. I'm gonna go. <laughs> I'm gonna go home now. Did I learn anything from this experience? Not really. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody might have. Somebody. 
the read it's a, it's all an exercise for the reader at home, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, so I always think of this issue as kind of an odd one out in a different way than, you know, all the other issues in this collection are odd. Like the warrior artist thing is interesting, I think. And even though it's sort of keeping in the, you know, like the mode of concerns about like, why do artists do what they do? You know? So maybe that, maybe that does hook mm-hmm. up, but like, I still feel like it has, you know, less to do with anything else other than like the fact that Hawks are animals, <laughs> right? That, is that, that's why it's an animal man because like Hawks yeah, are. Yeah. I mean, that's a yeah. clear parallel. Yep. So, yeah. So, I mean, do, do you, do you, do you feel this way as, as well? Or is this just me having some kind of natural aversion to all things Thanagarian or something? Well, you know, steeped as I am in the, you know, as the kids say, lore of Thanagar, <laughs> this all felt really natural to me. I mean, it's a typical Morrison spin on what was then established about Hawkman's home planet. Like the, the whole obsession, like this could have been a straightforward alien warriors attack and superhero has to fight them kind of thing. But we, right. we spun off into this, like I said, this poetic, sensitive, young artist having to find a, a place in this brutal warrior culture. And that is what the story is really about. And, and Buddy is just kind of witnessing it along with the readers. And it's weird, too, because we're still a few months out from Hawkworld at this point. And the Thanagar that features in this issue and in Invasion in general has been conquered by a fascist regime that has outlawed Hawkman and Hawkgirl. So they're kind of on the outs and not part of this invasion, um, hmm. which is why you know, this Hawkman. Well, this is where the problems start. <laughs> <laughs> Some Someday we'll talk about that. But anyway, the point is, I think this is just, I think Morrison was given a brief, like tie this in to what's going on in the company wide crossover somehow. And they found a way to do that with their own kind of obsessions about, um, or interest in, art and and yeah people's relationships to it yeah i'll i'll i will i will, I will think on that one i'll think on that one <laughs> <laughs> but i yeah. but i do have to remember that like when i when i come to this issue in the in the collection and read, read it and go like no that's good <laughs> it's, it's, it's not it's not it's not the one that i look forward to the most it's it's fine when no, I, it's fine it's fine yeah next one i do though i gotcha and the next issue, Buddy finds himself in Miami following the fallout from the whole invasion thing. Then Red Mask shows up. Red Mask is a middle-aged supervillain with a death touch. He's never mounted anything as a supervillain, and he's prepared to end his life by jumping off a building. Maybe he got the power of flight when he got the death touch? He's ready to find out. Now Buddy, after fighting some 1950s-style robots in the streets of Miami follows the trail to the top of the building where Red Mask stands on the edge of the roof. We get another life story, sort of in parallel to the previous issue, learning that Red Mask was out hunting one day with his dog when he encountered a spaceship, which then blew up, bombarding him with radiation that gave him his death touch. This is important, because we learn later that this is almost word-for-word Animal Man's origin. But that gets fully interrogated in the next volume and a later episode of the podcast. <laughs> That's why you should subscribe or follow us, kids. <laughs> next Red time. Ma- yeah, exactly. 
Red Mask becomes a supervillain not out of any real desire to make money or rule the world or anything, but just the sort of thing you do when you can kill <laughs> someone just by tapping them on the shoulder. His career has no highs, perhaps because his heart isn't really in the whole endeavor. Yeah, combined with a similar origin, Red Mask is sort of a double for Animal Man as the sort of marginal figure in the greater superhero, supervillain landscape. Um, maybe there's sort of like a like a there but for the grace of God thing going on here because Buddy actually can fly. Like he got he got the good superpowers, right? And Red Mask <laughs> got the crappy superpowers that you really can't do anything with. <laughs> Um, also like going back to that sort of like struggling artist slash musician metaphor, like red mask could sort of be a warning of buddy's possible future. Like what if you never make it right? Are you going to (laughs) be at the end of your life? Like looking back with regrets on, I was known for, you know, five minutes in 1956 or something. Right. After hearing red Mask's story, buddy convinces him to postpone his suicide attempt by promising to get him a TV spot. Buddy flies off, presumably to find a payphone to call his agent on behalf of Red Mass, because, of course, no one had cell phones in 1988. <laughs> uh, but Red Mass decides to jump anyway. He has a moment where he thinks he can actually fly, and then he plummets. And, you know, all this is very meta, just on the surface of it. But the issue is designed in conscious mockery or imitation of Watchmen. Morrison and Truog use a six-panel grid instead of the nine-panel grid that Gibbons had in Watchmen, but the layouts are the same, with a long view of the sidewalk beneath a very tall building and a crumpled body on the sidewalk below in a pool of blood. The panels zoom in by starting with a wide shot in the first panel and concluding with an extreme close-up of the scene in the sixth. The Red Mask's supervillain chest emblem resembles a skull, appropriate for a man with a death touch. But it also looks like the reverse R backed up against a regular R symbol from Watchmen. And his helmet looks like a red glass dome, just like the Red Hood's helmet in Moore's The Killing Joke. So is is this Morrison explaining their position that realistic superheroes are limiting and depressing and not much fun? (laughs) Um... Yeah, you know, it's, I mean, it's hard to know, right? Because that's probably how Morrison would spin this today, right? But I, this, to me, like, at least, this doesn't feel as, like, arch or pointed as something like uh, Pax Americana, which is Grant Morrison's 2014 uh, Watchmen riff they did as part of the, the Multiversity series. Like, that feels a little more pointed and saying, you know, there's all that stuff about if you take things apart, you can't really appreciate them or you or you, you, you kill it, right? Mm. This doesn't feel quite as critical, I think, maybe. I, I, I mean, whenever I read this for the first time, right, I didn't even really pick up on the reference to Watchmen, despite having, you know, read Watchmen, uh, until I noticed, like, the helmet and the, you know, the, the R, reversed R symbol. Mm. Um, also, I didn't, you know, but I also didn't pick up on the Daredevil references and Turtles until it was too late, so maybe that's... <laughs> that's but, um, yeah, so like, I, you know, I no, I don't have any evidence or whatever. This is just sort of a feel thing, but I almost wonder if this isn't necessarily a, a critique, but just sort of Grant Morrison showing like, Hey, I can do the sad loser in tights thing too. Right. Like I want to, <laughs> I want to give it, I want to, I want to take this car for a spin 
in this post Watchmen time too. I don't, I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. Morrison could just been riffing on Watchmen because that was the you know the style at the time, or <laughs> or maybe offering a critique of same. But it's it's hard to tell, and even harder now with so much water under the bridge and animosity, <laughs> <laughs> as previously discussed. Um, so with invasion out of the way, we're back in the Baker homestead. Buddy has finally made it into the Justice League, and he's making money as a superhero. But his powers are also acting weirdly, and he's worried that all his dreams are about to come to naught. Which is when Mirror Master attacks. (laughs) The original Mirror Master, who's one of Flash's better rogues, was long dead by this point. But Morrison, who has said their favorite superhero is Flash took the opportunity to introduce a new Mirror Master. This one is named McCulloch, and he's Scottish, speaking with Scott slang and accent. He ambushes Buddy in the house, and we get a taste of the surreal tricks to be played with magic mirrors, as Buddy pretty much gets slapped around for 20 pages, yeah. until Ellen arrives to kick Mirror Master Squaw in the nuts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she saves the day on this one. Yeah. Yeah, surreal is part of the appeal for Morrison, you know, with, with Mirror Master. Like, most Flash rogues are sort of wacky extrapolations of sort of real-world physics. You know, like, you got a heat guy, you got a cold guy, you got the weather elements, uh, boomerangs. <laughs> That's sort of physics, spinning right? Tops. <laughs> yeah, spinning tops. Yeah, spinning tops, right? <laughs> you know, very very broadly scientific principles here, I guess, is what, yes. what we're saying. Ice skating. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. It's literally, the possibilities are endless, yes. It's a high school science class in a comic book, yeah. <laughs> but there is like, there's a bit of like how do mirrors reflect light in some Mirror Master stories, but a lot of it is just, you know, doing stuff like in, in this issue, like he traps you in a mirror dimension where everything's upside down or he makes it so that you become a reflection of anyone that you bump into. So it's all this sort of like hallucinogenic ideas about reflections and that more than like the actual, what are the physics of how a mirror works? Right. Yeah. Physics are right out the window. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's the average superhero, but in particular. Yeah. And, and, and Morrison is not like pretending to like explain any of this stuff. If you read some of those, like, you know, silver or bronze age mirror master stories, they will sometimes like try to tell you that. Yeah, maybe if you had a specially treated mirror, whatever that means, like <laughs> if you if you had mirrors on your shoes, you could like ride a a spotlight because the light reflects off and propels you, whatever. Like that's it's a flash fact, right? Justin. Yeah, obviously that's that's nonsense. <laughs> but like Morrison is not even like pretending like that much. It's just like mirrors. What are some crazy things you can do with the idea of a mirror? Right, that's fun. Yeah. McCoy escapes, but not before saying that this was a warning. Buddy's animal rights activism has angered some powerful people, and Mirror Master was sent to scare him off and get him to behave like a good little superhero. The epilogue suggests that those powerful people are the U.S. government. And remember, folks, we're not that far out from Watergate and Iran-Contra at this point. And mm-hmm. um, the warning isn't just for Buddy, though. It is meant for the reader as well. Seated within this issue are a few bits and pieces that will build to the real piece de resistance that has made this comic book run truly memorable and classic, and we'll go through these one by one. The issue opens on a desktop computer screen, one of those 
big ones filled with tubes that were available in the early 90s. <laughs> not, not a cool flat screen. Um, on the computer screen is a quote. I cannot believe that God plays dice with the cosmos. We get the attribution to Albert Einstein typed in. And then on the final page of the issue, the addition of the words, he doesn't, I do. And we can't know this yet, but this is actually the first appearance of the actual author, Grant Morrison, within the story. And apparently the uh, drawings of the like where the computer is are based on photo reference for wherever Morrison was living at the time. So uh, this is one for the stands. Right? <laughs> if you can see your favorite writer's workspace and where they, you know, circa the front window and stuff. 1987. Yeah. So here's which I, where I wish I could go back and read these at the time or even just in order, which I didn't get to do. Because like the bit with the words on the computer might seem a little on the nose if you know what's coming. But I have to imagine that this was genuinely odd and inscrutable at the time. Like there, I don't know. I guess maybe the Coyote Gospel might have like given you a clue. It is a serious non sequitur. And I certainly, the first time I read these, I read these in order without having mm. the well, I think I knew, perhaps. I don't remember my first reaction to this, um, but I think I was confused. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, <laughs> another subplot, we're also introduced to a Native American man atop a mesa in the American Southwest who seems aware that he was just created on this page, fully formed with an identity and yet no memories so this is another thing that will it's going to play out more completely in the next collected volume and though i i don't know for sure when we'll get to that in the show i do want to call it out because it's important to the all overall narrative of this comic this is one of those major themes that runs through the whole run mm-hmm. and lastly we get a brief glimpse of a figure who's colored entirely blue because they're in shadow but it's important we get the details of their form uh, and profile, in particular the jacket and goggles that resemble Buddy's Animal Man costume. And of course, we're going to find out eventually that this is Buddy himself, but Buddy from the feature after something terrible has happened. And this is why I say that the warning is not just for Buddy, but for us as well. Buddy has sort of stumbled through the series from the very first issue to this encounter with Mirror Master, and it's been simultaneously fun and harrowing seeing him survive by the skin of his teeth and a bit of luck. And we perhaps take for granted that nothing truly bad will happen to the hero in his own book. Or, you know, uh, to his family. Just, you know, just throwing that, that out there. But, mm. um, this is the Iron Age, and no one is truly safe. Yeah, this issue is simultaneously a whimsical throwback to Silver Age surrealism, but also a, you know, home invasion intimidation campaign from the from the U.S. government on a U.S. Uh, citizen. So, yeah, Morrison is engaging with the increased stakes of the Iron Age and trying to make things, you know, more you know, dangerous, right? But approaching that differently from other writers, I think, because like, instead of trying to make things more dangerous by making them real or logical, you know, the, the idea that like Batman should fight, you know, crack dealers with guns and knives, you know, cause that's, <laughs> that's real. And that's something that doing that instead of having 
you know, wacky, you know, mirror gadgets and guns and stuff. Grant points out the implications of someone who can do what Mirror Master does, all that physics-defying, you know, surrealistic, you know, impossible stuff. That's actually scarier <laughs> when you think about it than yeah. am I going to get stabbed with a knife? Like the implications of that, <laughs> if, you, if you play them with some sort of, you know, idea of seriousness like Morrison is doing here, are, you know, in a lot of ways more terrifying than your conventional uh, dangers. So the last issue in this collection is once again built around the Baker homestead. It's a little lighter as Martian Manhunter arrives to formally welcome Buddy into the Justice League. He brings a pair of technicians along with him, or there to repair the damage caused by the battle last issue. And this is one of the many perks of Justice League membership. They're also there to install a home security system with laser blasters and such, and you know, just what a home with young children needs. <laughs> so... I can't remember now, but is this the first time that the post-crisis uh, Bwahaha Justice League has come up on the on the podcast? Yeah, I yeah, I think so. So I'm gonna I'm put I'm gonna put this on the calendar for like year two. Okay, so we, can, we can talk about this more there. But like basically, for anybody who doesn't know what this sort of era of Justice League was about, it was sort of a comedy take on the league, as with you know a bunch of sort of squabbling. Mostly sub A list goofballs like Blue Beetle and and Booster Gold. Like it was sort of a <laughs> sort, of, sort of sort of a workplace sitcom as a team book. Yep. Uh, when Morrison goes on to write JLA, our, our one of our favorite comics, right? Yes. Uh, joining the Justice League is like being admitted to the Greek Pantheon or sitting at King Arthur's Round Table or something. Here it's like getting a corporate job with really good benefits. More mundane, but you know, that, that sort of idea of mundane equals relatable. A different idea than the more fantasy-based thing that Morrison really gets into later on. Yep. Buddy and Martian Manhunter talk about Buddy's malfunctioning powers, and Manhunter suggests a doctor who might help. In the meantime, Cliff, Buddy's son, is being harassed by neighborhood bullies. His dad, the superhero, is no help with the issue. But Martian Mander steps in and terrifies the teenage hoodlums by transforming into a scary monster. And <laughs> there's a panel where Manhunter seems genuinely amused. The Cliff <laughs> is angry at his dad and resentful. Like he's got this smirk on his face when Cliff chews his dad out. It's really weird. Yeah, I, mean, I think that's, that's sort of in keeping with John's role as like the sort of aloof straight man observer, you know, kind of the odd man out in the comedy league. But he does tell Buddy that, like, he appreciates his stance on animal rights and really wants to see him, you know, make it in the Justice League. So, like, this is a proper classic DC Silver Age superhero giving our series protagonist his, you know, seal of approval, right? Uh, maybe we talk here about Buddy's family in general because uh, kids in superhero comics often sort of come off as either like sweet little innocent angels like Franklin Richards, you know, very wide-eyed and <laughs> always, you know, like cute and sweet and helpful and, and all that. <laughs> Uncle Ben. Right. <laughs> Uncle Johnny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or they'll be like rebellious Hellraisers, right? And like that's, you got to keep them in line or they become, you know, teenagers with angst and problems and, you know, drug addictions and all that. Uh, a little more realistic or maybe at least maybe relatable thing that's going on here is that like, you have a kid like Cliff, who is Buddy's, you know, older son, who's just kind of snotty. You know? yeah. <laughs> like Cliff is not a bad kid, but you know, like I you know, sometimes 
when Buddy's having a bad day, he seems like, oh, yeah, hi, Clef. Yeah, he, Buddy seems like a really absent dad. <laughs> yeah. He's very involved with his superhero career and mm-hmm. everything, and like, he doesn't seem to have a lot of time for his kids. Yeah, maybe not. Maybe that's sort of a thing that gets looked at later in context of the, the larger arc. But also, like, Cliff just seems to be like sort of an, an awkward age, you know, where it's... I love my son, right? Mm-hmm. But maybe this kid is being with his, you know, metal t-shirts and his his mullet. <laughs> maybe this maybe this kid is sort of hard for me to relate to at times. <laughs> yeah, I also uh, want to talk about Ellen, his his wife here, because like I buy Buddy and Ellen as an actual like functioning married couple mm-hmm. who exist in something like real life a little bit more than I do. You know, Peter and Mary Jane, like we've been talking about yeah. in, in Spider-Man, were like, like Morrison was not married at this time. Uh, they get married later on. But like this at least feels like, you know, at least a close observation of actual married couples and sort of the dynamic there where it's not just about, you know, Ellen doesn't exist as this solely as this person who gives moral support or a person who just chews Buddy out. Like she has her own stuff going on in her life too right so like you she like every you, you get the sense like when she's interacting with buddy it's not like obviously he is the main character of the story and i am here to support him it's like i have my own life he has his own life and he, we are partners right yeah i my recollection from the introduction to animal man trade is that morrison was living with a partner even before they got the animal man gig. They're making enough money on Zenith to support an an apartment um, hmm. with someone. So I think that that comes from living day to day with another person <laughs> in a way. That, yeah, that you don't pick up just from you know going out on dates. <laughs> you know? Right. So yeah, Ellen feels like a real person. She gets exasperated with Buddy. She yells at him, but she's ultimately supportive and. She has a career of her own, which allows her to work from home, but she isn't related to the superhero nonsense. You know, <laughs> she kind of like puts up with it because it's it's Buddy's mm-hmm. thing, but she's just like, she'll just kick Nerve Master in the balls. <laughs> right. You know, like enough of this. Let's just get this over with kind of thing. It's, it's very mm-hmm. refreshing. And you don't often see this kind of a character in any age. Of comics, you don't you don't see that very often at all. Um, yeah. So this is a transitional issue. The art comes from Tom Grummet, as previously mentioned, uh, whose line work is a little grittier than Truog's. The cartooniness is gone, although Grummet does a decent job with the domestic scenes and the lack of spandex. He can also draw kids, which is another skill that, that too many comic artists do not really have. I will say that about uh, my favorite comic artist, John Byrne. Yeah. <laughs> they just look like little adults, like short adults, don't they? Yeah. Sort of that, that um, was like pre-Raphaelite art where you see the baby Jesus and it's like a little, a tiny little man. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thinking of the, the Billy and, and Mary Batson from Legends. They're just, they look like, <laughs> yeah, little adults. It's really weird. So here's your subplot alert. Our Native American character from last issue enters his apartment, a place he has never been but knows intimately, and he learns, along with the audience, that his name is Hightower. Our new supporting character is learning about himself as we do. It's a neat trick. 
and an obvious example of Grant playing with the rules of fiction. Yeah, I thought that was I. This is the sort of thing that I like, you know, in the the you know the sort of big lava lamp on thinking about what it means to be fictional, right? Yeah. <laughs> but you know, but that's but this is this is the end of the book, right? Like yep. the, the end of like this, you know, this collection of of uh, the Animal Man series. So like we're really just getting into the metafiction angle that everyone knows Animal Man for at the end here of, of book one. And it does sort of emphasize to me, at least I think that like Morrison is sort of finding their way on their first ongoing series rather than having a, you know, a wealth organized grand plan at this point. Maybe. I think they were clearly seeding these elements very early, knowing that they would get more screen time later in the series. I do think there was a grand plan, at least once the coyote gospel was written. Like we said, that, or like you pointed out, this, the Coyote Gospel is like the Cliff Notes version of the whole next 20 issues of Animal Man. So the, the rest of the series is essentially a recapitulation of that story, uh, just that Buddy is the coyote. <laughs> <laughs> so I think these little snippets, these little subplots are just, you know, what comic book writers used to do? Where they would <laughs> they would tease upcoming events and issues and and that was part of the fun every month is seeing how this new thing would develop or where it was going in amongst the the bigger plot of each issue. You know, that's one of the keys to Walt Simonson's Thor is that sort of thing is going on a lot. I think that was also something present in the first dozen issues of Thunderbolts that we talked about as mm-hmm. how carefully Busiek was arranging his pieces and setting up his the, his story and I think I think Grant was doing the same thing it may seem in maybe only in retrospect maybe, maybe they were making it up as they went along I don't know but uh, it could have been serendipity but it looks like it was planned so it's difficult to talk about the legacy of this book because we're only tackling the first third of this series right now this is kind of a trial run for how we're going to approach longer runs in the future. So much of the stuff we associate with Morrison's Animal Man comes up in the, the last part of Morrison's tenure. Issue number five, The Coyote Gospel, was nominated for an Eisner Award. Eisner Awards are kind of like the Oscars for comics. It's notable that this issue and, and this series were recognized as being special and, and revolutionary, even when it was being published. Well, I think Morrison's Batman trade, Arkham Asylum, a serious house on serious earth did more for their bank account than animal man did. Hmm. This book was still a financial as well as a critical success. As we mentioned, it did well enough that after the first four issues, DC wanted to keep Grant around. Man, what a different time. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. Like, it speaks to what a boom time that the immediately post crisis era was for DC. Cause like, Miniseries today don't really get upgraded to ongoings. You know, it's more likely that like an ongoing series will get canceled and then retroactively termed <laughs> a mini. But like that's, you know, that that post-crisis era was like really, things were happening for, for DC. People were paying attention in a way that they weren't before. Yeah. Or and, a, a book about an animal man who <laughs> was never a popular character, right? And all of a sudden like, sure, that's, yeah, let's, let's keep spinning this out. Right. And because within the, the DCU, this run really put Animal Man on the map. The average person familiar with Marvel movies and such has rightfully no idea who Animal Man is. 
But within the comic community, Animal is now, you know, a big deal. Pretty far from the total obscurity that Grant rescued Buddy from back in 1987. This run continued long after Morrison left the series and helped create the Vertigo imprint along with Swamp Thing, Hellblazer, and, and of course Sandman. Almost every time DC does a reboot of their universe, which happens every decade or so now, I think. Decade if you're lucky. Yeah, <laughs> yeah sometimes it's every six months. So Inland gets another chance in the limelight with his own solo title. But of course, any title not tied directly to Gotham City has shaky legs these days. I think his last two never made it past issue 30, <laughs> which is, I think, where... 27, 29 somewhere is, I think, where Morrison checks out. But I don't think any of his Animal Man's titles have lasted even that long. Mm. So, and of course, I've I've got these stories in three paperback trades, but there's a nice shiny omnibus available in print that collects the entire Morrison run. And I'll put in a word for seeking this out as single issues, which some of mine is trade and some of mine is, is single issues. Uh, you get letters pages where readers are actually writing in to have generally respectful discussions, I think, about animal rights issues. You know, even vegetarians weighing in to say like, hey, you know, Buddy throwing out all the meat in his fridge is like not a cool thing to do, like not just nutritionally, but also like as the head of a household. Like you said, like making a, the unilateral decision without talking to your wife or yeah. working out what your kids are going to eat for <laughs> you know protein and stuff. Yeah, so like DC letters pages from this time are pretty cool, I think. Like Doom Patrol in particular also has a lot of this kind of back and forth engaging with the the themes and the the broader meaning of stories. Also the um the Denny O'Neill Dennis Cohen question series discusses books on like Eastern philosophy that O'Neill is reading at the time. So this is all just, you know, it's all just sort of like that, that, you know, like we've been saying about all along in this series, you know, the aging up of the average comic reader mm-hmm. and that has its own repercussions. Right. But like one of the things that you get is, is the letter pages are actually people talking about stuff and not just doing, you know, I like this issue. We had a cool villain. Please have him team up with Batman in one issue. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's also, you know, a level of engagement, um, when letters pages came from actual letters, <laughs> yeah, someone had to write by hand uh, and put in an envelope with a stamp, not just um, fire off an angry email <laughs> or <laughs> or or tweet about it. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a it was definitely a different different time, and and those those letters issues can be a lot of fun to read for sure. I think it's probably safe to say at this point that we're fans of this series and these creators but in case i am off base (laughs) what are your final thoughts on these first nine issues of animal man thumbs down oh no no. (laughs) you tricked me (laughs) (laughs) no i'm i'm really glad that we decided to zoom in on this first trade because I think in the th- same way that like we talked about how Thunderbolts discussion tends to get dominated by the first issue and the twist and then everything else is sort of secondary. Like most of what people talk about when they talk about Animal Man and for good reason, right? Like obviously that's what you would talk about if you're looking at the, the, the run as a whole. But like the metafiction stuff is like what people tend to focus on. And aside from the Coyote Gospel and a couple of subplots gearing up in this last issue or two, that's not what this series is yet. 
like at this point, this is still mostly about a, you know, a regular guy, family man who's trying to be a superhero, but doesn't have it all figured out the way that Superman and Green Lantern seem to. Like I said, he's very ineffectual in a lot of the conclusions of these issues. Like he needs Hawkman to show up and turn off the bomb because he's a, he's a real superhero. <laughs> yeah. Supposed to yeah. Right. And all uh, man, this sort of uh, <laughs> hanger on, right? Yeah. He's a bum. Uh, so yeah, you called this run like playful at the top of the show. And that's what I like about this phase of the run. When I go back to it is that Morrison feels like they're having fun playing in the sandbox of the DC universe. Like this is the sort of the more joyous side of like the fan turned pro phenomenon that we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. Right. Like they get to write a Superman cameo. Mm-hmm. They get to add a new mirror master to the canon, and they credit the issue to you know John Broom and Gardner Fox and and um, Carmine Infantino and 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 Barry Allen. Like they say, like the late great Barry Allen. Like that <laughs> seems like they are having fun with like the idea of like, ooh, I get to write a comic book <laughs> with you know with these characters. That's how cool is that? Yeah. It's a really a really sort of infectious enthusiasm there. Um, I don't totally love the invasion tie-in, like we said, but yeah. like I do feel like Morrison probably thinks that it was really cool to get to play with Hawkman lore. So, yeah, this is—I mean, this is Grant Morrison before they were, you know, all caps Grant Morrison, right? Just sort of figuring it out, just like Buddy is. And I do think that the series gets better, you know, in however you want to qualify or quantify better as it goes on. But in the struggling musician metaphor, it's kind of like listening to one of the early albums by a band that you like before they got big, I think, (laughs) you know? Yeah. I gotta say, I do like doing these runs in sections. It gives the individual chunks room to breathe. We run the risk of tangling up the narrative as we jump from topic to topic each episode. However, we don't want to do a month and a half on just animal man or like a half a year on JLA or something, but you know, (laughs) I guess we're putting that out to the listener at home and, and you can let us know what you think about the way we've, we've decided to do these things. Yeah. We're not just like fishing for engagement here or, or something we actually want to know, especially because we keep trying to figure out how to do Mark Wade's flash. And we really want to do, <laughs> I think like all of that at some point. Yeah. And so it's a matter of, do you want to wait a couple of years or something, assuming that we go on that long to do it? Or like, do you want this to become like a podcast about the flash for three or four months in a row? Like that's sort of the, the trade off here. Are we break it off in half and half? And then I don't know. Yeah. Really please uh, do reach out to us and let, let us know what you think or how you think that would work best into your, into your schedule. Right. Yeah. We, we aim to please. But yeah. Back to this comic that we're actually talking about. Uh, Jim, tell me what, you know, what are your, your big thoughts about uh, Animal Man? <laughs> so I, I, yeah, I mean, clearly, <laughs> I think it's obvious. I can't pretend otherwise. I, I love this book. I'm not a huge fan of Animal Man specifically, but the way the story unfolds and develops and the places it goes are just so wonderful and heartrending and ultimately gratifying. It's quite a series. And I think in any other medium it probably would have been allowed to end when morrison wrapped up the story they were telling or would that go against the spirit of the whole endeavor yeah i don't know i mean that's something that morrison sort of laments that they'll like seven soldiers right yeah seven soldiers was designed to add all these like interesting new characters or redesign characters to the dc universe and they wanted 
other writers to like pick those up and do something with them. And it seems like when Morrison does something, everybody is so knocked out by it that they go, oh, okay, well, obviously I don't want to touch, you know, Manhattan Guardian because I can't live up to that or whatever. So <laughs> I'm just going to bring, you know, regular old white Guardian back or whatever. <laughs> and that's sort of a, sort of a shame. So yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess it's, I guess, you know, what Morrison sort of wants to do is to revitalize this character and let other people deal with it. But yeah, it does always, with Animal Man, sort of always come back to, to Morrison, I suppose. Yeah. So, I think we're we're done with Animal Man for now, at least for now. For now, yeah. I think, though, I am going to pull the trigger on something for next time, something I've been threatening to do for a while now. All this invasion talk has given me a hankering for Hawkman. At least the good stuff when I think about the Winged <laughs> Warrior. So your ambivalence aside, I'm very excited by the, <laughs> by the very idea of diving into Timothy Truman's sci-fi dystopian action-adventure tale, Hawkworld, which is the official post-crisis origin for Hawkman. At least, you know, until the retcons began. <laughs> okay. I'm, you know what? I'm coming into this with, a, with an open mind. <laughs> an open heart. I'm going to. <laughs> I, am, I, am, I have a, a longstanding suspicion of Hawkman. Right? But <laughs> why should that be when, I, when, I, when we just spent the last however long talking about how great a superhero called Animal Man is? Right? So, <laughs> yeah. so I will, I, I'm looking forward to diving into Hawkman and seeing what that is all about. Because that will be, be a new one for me. Cool. So, reach out to us at Iron Age Comics Podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and threads at Iron Age of Comics. Thanks so much for listening. And on behalf of the Iron Age of Comics, I have been Justin Zyda. I've been Jim Cannon. And have a good night.